Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is right on 7.30, and, of course, it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to welcome back both Gwen and Roger Elliott. Good morning, you two. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, everyone. Hey, Pam, where have you been? <laughs> I've been right here, Roger. Right? Oh, yeah. Where have you been? <laughs> I, I, I really don't know. <laughs> I'm sure we'll find out as the uh, morning progresses, actually. I'm sure you've been involved in lots of things. But anyway, <laughs> we also have to say a very good morning to Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, listeners. And uh, Nippy, up the mountain? Oh, a little bit, yes, a little bit of a breeze, but a nice weekend. Yesterday was lovely, and on the whole it's been pretty good, just slightly windier than I would have preferred for autumn. Our autumn leaves sort of flying through the air at the moment. But, oh, yes. Uh, but uh, there it is. Oh, any nice frost? Day. Have you had any oh, no, frost no, at all? Oh, no, no, we don't Nothing. have frost. Have you? <laughs> no, we're too far up the mountain, oh, actually. Right. It all slides off and ends up in Coldstream. Or, oh, lucky you. <laughs> Berwick or somewhere. Yep. They're actually saying that this year, we, we kept thinking that, you know, it's going to come with a vengeance and we're, in, we're going to be in for a cold snap. But they're saying that this winter's going to be warm, Roger. Yeah, that's, that's the prediction. Be yeah, fairly it's mild. a worry. Yeah, well, mm. that's right. And uh, some things will like it and some things won't. True. But, but all the fruit trees that yeah, need a good frost. That, that's right, as far as uh, yeah, setting, setting fruit. <laughs> anyway, look, at, we'll see. Yep, and we certainly need rain. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, we were just wandering around a place called the E.O. E.A. Owen Conservation Reserve, just Officer, between Officer and Beaconsfield. And, um, you know, we're, we're at Berwick and we've had fairly good rains, but you went up there and, you know, it was quite dry. Yes. You know, just probably went down maybe a couple of centimetres at mm. the most and then it was dry underneath. Yeah. Mm. So, it's, uh, yeah, no, we do need rain. Are you mm. getting much rain, Jeremy? Oh, well, um, we're happy with what we're getting, but we always have more than we really need or deserve. But uh, good rains in uh, in Western Australia yesterday. Oh, so, yeah. oh, right. Sort of keep an eye on Western Australia. Yeah, fair and, enough. Uh, uh, big system moving through there, and uh, we'll find out about it. Uh, t- well, tonight, I imagine. Um, so that that's that's good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's impossible not to worry about the weather nowadays, isn't it? Well, it is. Yeah. It really is. And, and uh, yeah, so um, in fact, as you were speaking, Roger, I just uh, have a great uh, half a landscape worth of flowers sitting on the desk in front of us, uh, and uh, just just wondering what your feelings are about. Uh, well, you know, the the the, the reef, uh, uh, yeah. tremendous coral bleaching uh, this past summer, and yes. and. Uh, and you know, we, I, when we first started talking about climate change, I thought, well, this is something our grandchildren will have to worry about. Maybe our great great grandchildren, but well, no, we're seeing it right now. We certainly and, are. And uh, just wondering mm. how you see it affecting uh, the uh, distribution of oh, some it, of the flora. It's, it's certainly going to affect the distribution of some flora for yeah. sure, and uh, also flora. You know, fauna. That's the other thing. You know, where you've got. Uh, Animals at fairly high altitude, where are they going to go if, yeah. it, if it does get you know warm mm. over a long period? Mm. So yeah, and and it's interesting about you just saying about us worrying. I know I was talking to a chap the other day, and uh, he was his son, who's probably about forty, or a bit, maybe a bit less, and he was quite concerned about climate and 
And uh, this chap Tony said, well, I don't have to worry about it. And his son, yes, you, you do have to worry about it, he <laughs> says, you know. <laughs> it's going to affect, you know, your grandchildren and uh, and a whole lot of other people. So, yeah, and it's um, – I know at the Botanic Gardens uh, they're re- not totally reorganising even the plantings at the Melbourne Gardens, but looking at any replacement plants that go in, uh, hopefully we'll be able to cope with, you know, drier and hotter climate. So, yeah, no, it's, a, it's something we all have to think about. I I think it's a bit of a problem if we worry too much. You know, worry doesn't usually do you much good. But it's, it's certainly... It's, when you look at the, the temperatures over the last, you know, 100 years and you see a long-term temperatures, there is just a huge increase mm. in the last 100 years mm. as far as temperature. So, yeah, and uh, even May, I can remember when we were school kids, it was always wet and, and coldish in May, but it's not this year anyway. No, it certainly mm. isn't this year. Mm. Yes. I think the other thing we've got to be aware of is the tiniest things. We sort of think about elephants and polar bears and kangaroos or whatever, but it's the very minute insects and other creatures who are very much affected. Mm. Um, And it it all sort of goes from there. But we often tend to think, well, things like that aren't really particularly important. But when you consider the food chain uh, and the birds and then the pollination of plants, and, you Mm. know, there's Mm. a lot of awareness of the importance of bees at the moment, native bees and the European bees for the crops we've introduced... Um, but, you know, it's some of these very small things in our environment are much more important than we give them credit for. So I think they're some of the aspects that also we just have to, you know, listen to the scientists. And it's not just one scientist saying that, oh, there's a bit of a problem here. It's a whole community of scientists saying, hey, you guys, you've got to listen to this. And exactly. So we, yeah. <laughs> we need to listen and learn. Yeah, so I, 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 the sad thing is that people, a lot of people, politicians, don't really appreciate uh, the direction scientists come from. The scientists are always trying to disprove things. And so for every scientist who says something's happening, there's uh, there's quite a few trying to figure out ways why it's not happening. But when they all start to agree, that's when we really have to sit up mm. and take notice. And at the moment, they're agreeing. There's no doubt yeah, about yeah. it. No, I think of Western Australia and, and um, there's um, someone pointed out something to me um, oh, a few months ago. If you look at an atlas and run, uh, look at Africa and the well, the northern wheat belt of Western Australia, just uh, Geraldton and and Northampton, that area there, yeah. beautiful wildflower area, of course. But if you look, uh, you run across that um, latitude to the uh, West African coast, and what have you got? You got the the, the the desert of if I can pronounce it, Namibia. Yeah, the Atacama Desert in northern Chile. That's equivalent latitude, and and really, Western Australia is quite anomalous in that it does have an agricultural area in which. Everywhere, the uh, uh, equivalent latitudes elsewhere in the world are some of the world's most extreme deserts. Mm. And that's likely to happen, uh, yeah. could happen quite easily, could happen very quickly. Is it Banu up there? I'm trying to remember, just north of Geraldton, which... Uh, yeah, one of the... Uh, yeah, used to have wheat like some of the best, best um, crop yeah. of wheat was in that area. 
There's a guy called Eric Smart who is the world's biggest wheat grower, uh, working around Three Springs and and, uh, back in the 1950s. Hard to believe, but the the world's biggest wheat grower Mm. in these, um, well, sand plain wheat belt areas of northern Western Australia. Mm. You only have to look at the weather maps at the moment. They are so different from oh, weather yeah. maps mm. we used to see. Mm. It's mm. just incredible. Mm. And, and more and more you see those cold fronts coming through and they're totally missing the mainland. I mean, dear old Tassie is finally getting some water, well, but, yeah. but it's incredible how far south they're going. It's just a, just amazing. I mean, the weather maps looked nothing like that when I was a child growing up. Oh, no, that's right. Yeah, that's right. yeah. yeah it's certainly changed. However, we must uh, move on. We'll get to a few community announcements. Um, <clears throat> first up, uh, the next um, meeting of the um, uh, Australian Plant Society Kilo Plains Group uh, is coming up on Friday the 3rd of June at 8 o'clock. Now... Uh, their speaker is going to be landscape ar- architect Louise Pell. She's giving a free talk on garden design with Indigenous plants. And uh, Louise uh, and her garden is, is in uh, A.B. Bishop's and Angus Stewart's new book on the Australian Native Garden, if people want to have a look at that. Uh, now, the venue for the meeting is East Keelor Airport West Uniting Church. The address is on the corner of Roberts Road and Glenis Avenue in Airport West. Melway's map reference there is 15H8. And if you'd like more information, you can contact Anne. Her number is 9336-3228. Now, Friends of Burnley Gardens, um, their next workshop coming up is Saturday the 28th of May. So that's next Saturday. Uh, and it's making a hotel for native bees. We were just mentioning bees. Um and uh, this is being run uh, by Lee Scott. Now, it's taking place at Burnley College. Time is 10am through to 12.30. Cost, if you're a member of Friends of Burnley Gardens, is $50. For non-members, $55. Now, that includes the materials for a hotel made of timber. And uh, you need to bring materials to decorate the bee rooms. They're filled with a range of garden materials cut to size, varying in diameter from 2 to 10 millimetres, such as bamboo, hollow sticks or pieces of timber with holes drilled into it. You also need to BYO secateurs. Uh, Now, bookings are essential, of course. You can email friends.burnley at gmail.com or you can telephone 9035-6815. That's 9035-6815. Also coming up next Saturday is the, um, the workshops on compost making uh, being run by Open Gardens Victoria. These are both taking place at 478 Ryrie Street in East Geelong. And uh, there are two sessions, 9.30 till 12 and 1.30 till 4. Ticket price is $30, which includes morning or afternoon tea and composting notes. Now, you need to book and pay online. Go to the website of Open Gardens Victoria, which is opengardensvictoria.org.au and follow the prompts for that one. Now, also, uh, Friends of Geelong Botanic Gardens, their next discovery walk is all about tree stories. Now, this is coming up Sunday of next week, the 29th of May. 
two o'clock, you meet the guide at the front steps of Geelong Botanic Gardens. The cost is a gold coin donation and they'll be looking at the majestic trees of the Geelong Botanic Gardens, giving the gardens their structure and year-round interest. And there's a splendid collection of grand and unusual uh, trees from all over the world with many classified by the National Trust. So that's what they'll be looking at. That, as I say, is next Sunday, 2 o'clock, at the front steps of Geelong Botanic Gardens. Now, Roger, you've got a few things coming up. Cranbourne's being quite active at the moment. They, they are, Pam, just before the Cranbourne ones. Next Sunday, the 29th of May, is the Botanic Gardens of Australia and New Zealand Open Day, and there's quite a few things happening on that day. Um, there's Burnley Gardens is uh, having things from 11am to 2pm. There's uh, plant sale, garden tours and things like that at Burnley Gardens. Also, a garden called the Systems Garden at the Botany School of Melbourne University um, is being opened and some people may have seen that. I think it was on Gardening Australia a little while ago. Um, but that's well worth going to. And if you're wondering, up to the Botany School is more or less in the northwest corner of the, the campus at uh, Melbourne University. So uh, if you get to Trinity College, you've gone too far. But the system gardens would be well worth uh, looking at at the garden. Also, there's been a renovation of an Alice Stone's garden at um, Melbourne University too, and that's uh, on the west side of the car park, underground car park, just near the Bayview Library. So that's um, be worth having a look at. So anyway, if you want to find out more information about the Botanic Gardens of Australia and New Zealand Open Day, you can go to www.botanicgardensopenday, one word, dot org. So that's, uh, but there are quite a few things happening at various botanic gardens mm. and on uh, that special Open Day. Um, at the uh, Cranbourne Gardens, there is a workshop coming up on... Saturday the 4th of June called Fabulous Fungi and there's certainly a bit of fungi around at the moment um, and this is running all day from 9.30 to 4pm and so they're going to have uh, a look at fungi because I suppose a lot of us do know that fungi are extremely important in a whole range of different ways but uh, you know many plants just wouldn't function if they didn't have some relationship with with one or more fungi and so the you know, we're going to, there'll be people talking about that. There'll be an overview of, you know, what, what is a fungus. And uh, also there's a, that's by Dr Tom May, and he's um, from the Royal Botanic Gardens. He's the, one of the top, top people in Australia on fungi. And then uh, Nushka Reiter, she's a, an orchid conservationist and, uh, and botanist, once again from the Royal Botanic Gardens. Uh, she's based at Cranbourne. She's been doing a lot of work in uh, trying to find out how to germinate seed of endangered species of orchids. And she's had great success. And they've even been replanting in some areas. Mm. And so that, that's uh, good. Nushka's really good speaker, and uh, she'll be talking about that sort of thing. Jeff Lay, he's a, a lay person. That's a good name, <laughs> isn't it? Um, from the Field Naturalist Club of Victoria. And he'll be talking about Victorian fungi. And, uh, and then uh, Simone Luoff is going to be talking about lichens and people might say, what, 
what have lichens got to do with fungi? Well, it's actually a com- you know, combination of, uh, of fungi and alga or cyanobacterium that uh, form lichens, so that there is a special relationship there. And then there's a chap, John Thompson, he's one of the friends, and he always, nearly all of our workshops, he talks about a different aspect of, of fungi, and he'll, he'll look at uh, maybe the uses of fungi and also their, um, their, I suppose, their use in art and things like that. So he, he gives a totally different uh, point of view from the, from the scientist. So there's more an antis- artistic side uh, to John. So the, the, it'll be a really good day, and um, bookings close tomorrow. Goodness. That's right. Is today the 22nd? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, tomorrow. And uh, <clears throat> bookings are going pretty well, but there are a few spaces left. Um, so the costs for members of the Friends are 60 If you're a non-member, $75 and students, 30 And I know we've got about 12 students coming, so that's really good. That's excellent. Starting to get quite a few students come now, uh, and they're coming from Chisholm uh, Chisholm group I think anyway so that's good but if you want further information you can contact Amy Akers and her phone number is 0423 I'll just repeat that in case people want it it's 0423 and if you contact Amy uh, she'll, she'll look after you but that's, so uh, can you also book with Amy? Yes, she'll, she'll organise that sort of thing. Okay. She'll probably send you a booking form. Okay. And uh, if you get in quickly, that'll, that'll be fine. Sometimes we give, give people a day or two over the, the date. But, but they really need to get yeah. onto it. Oh, yeah, they need to. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that's um, Saturday 4th of June. Okay. Excellent. And um, other things that are happening, of course, are down the track. There is this... Um, thing that's grown bigger than Ben-Hur. It's going to be a kangaroo paw celebration for a whole month of November. And um, so that uh, there'll be exhibitions, art exhibitions and things will be happening over, over that time. But the gardens have been planting up a huge number of kangaroo paws just recently uh, with the help of friends and also their gardens ambassadors. They've been okay. plant, planting out. And they've had some really great donations from Angus Stewart and Ram Botanicals. And so the place is going to be full of kangaroo paws <laughs> in November. And um, there's a special weekend. They're calling it the Kangaroo Paw Picnic and there'll be lots of displays and there'll be a special plant sale, uh, which the Growing Friends are, have organised. And um, there'll be a launch of Anigazanthus Landscape Violet. This is bred by Angus, so that's going to be launched on Saturday the 19th of November and there'll be lots of things happening over that weekend and then there's a special three day symposium being held from the 24th to the 26th of November um, so it covers three different areas the first day is science bot- botany and horticultural science the second day is looking at more at design and also for people like in public botanic gardens public gardens and uh, Talking about displaying these plants, things like that, but also diseases and and uh, and propagation. And nurseries like. and cut flower yeah, growers. Cut, cut flower growers. So, who are yep. professionally involved landscapers. Mm. Yep. And then the <laughs> day three is for people like you and I, Pam, the home gardener. <laughs> so and enthusiasts and anybody else who likes yep. to come along. But we've got some really great speakers. Um, there's they call him Lord Hopper <laughs> these days. <laughs> 
Some people do, right? Pro- Not his pro- family. Professor Steve Steve Hopper from Western Australia, who used to be director of um, Kings Park, and then he went to be director of, well, the first non-Brit to be a director of uh, Kew. Kew Botanic Gardens. So, and mm. and that's his. His family is the Hemoderaceae family, the, the blood root family, which includes kangaroo paws and right. conostylus. He did his PhD on it. And uh, we've got uh, another professor, Kingsley Dixon, who did a lot of work in uh, Western Australia, Kings Park, <coughs> especially with germination from s- using smoke treatment for okay. a lot of these plants. And Kingsley's all... all he's, he's Wants to come, he said. Um, the, the thing is, once we've got Steve Hopper and Angus Stewart coming, um, people are saying, I'd love to come. And many of the people are coming from interstate, New South Wales, Western Australia, all over the place at their own expense. Uh, and we've got a Californian coming at his own expense. You know, people are saying, I want to come, you know. Which and is so this is it's, so other people are wanting to come too because it's really going to be a, an exciting time and a Very. chance to meet some of these people who don't come to Melbourne all that often. Mm. No, there's some interesting people there. Kingsley Dixon, I yeah. met him back in the 80s. That's right. Yeah, so that's right. Try to, try to track down... Um, Kangaroo grass, actually. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, uh, so he um, he was showing me specimens of dry kangaroo grass from the Kimberleys. It's pretty rare in the southwest of Western Australia. Yeah, it's the only right. the yeah. only part of yeah. Australia where it's, uh, where kangaroo grass you, 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 it's it's rare. But yeah. Uh, yeah. but of course the 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 rain falls the wrong way around for That's it to grow. But yeah. there is there are a few little patches of it. I did eventually find did a patch. You? Okay. Mm. Yeah, How can but people... the Kingsley was oh, fabulous. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. He, he's great. He's such an enthusiast. And uh, he's so knowledgeable too. So, and we've you know there's Brett Summer who he's two um, IC up at the Sydney Botanic Gardens. He his real, I suppose, is disease. He's so he's coming talking about disease. And there's a whole range of other people coming, landscape people and uh, all that sort of thing. But it won't just be on kangaroo paws. <laughs> so there's lots of other. Things in that family. There's a group called Conostylus. I should have brought some flowers in today. Conostylus is about eighty odd species, and they they don't really look like kangaroo paws, but they're closely related. And uh, I know when the um, the botanist who did the revision quite a few years ago, the first revision, he said, oh, "I didn't think these had any horticultural potential." Well, how wrong oh. could he? How wrong could he be? <laughs> some some have this beautiful narrow foliage, and they're often covered in hairs and there's one called satidra means bristly and so you've got all these bristles going off and and just in the sunlight but when it flowers it has flowers about this lemony yellow color and they've been flowering now for probably started nearly february okay and it's still going and starting to put up another but bunch of flowers now so they do flower for a long time and there's the blood roots hemodorums which are now uh, scientists and especially people working in medical field are finding there's probably great potential as far as getting some good drugs out of some of these okay. hem- hemodorums. So, and uh, yeah. So anyway, there's there's lots lots. So it's a long way off, but stick it in your diary. Oh, absolutely! The, the, the and don't holi- book your holidays to coincide with <laughs> the end of November. It's sort of go, well, most of the month, but the main activities say from the nineteenth through to the end of the month. So yeah. don't book holidays. Roger, can people register their email or something so that they can be kept up to date? Yeah, look, they could. While you're thinking of that, no, I'll just I, say, I can, yeah, look, they, right. they, I could give my email address. Okay, you give so your it's, email. 
R.G. Elliot, E-L-L-I-O-T, at optusnet.com.au. And as soon as we get some information about things, uh, hopefully bookings for the uh, symposium will be open in June. Mm-hmm. So we're getting quite close to that. So if people do want to register, uh, they can do it. Or you could even ring, if you want, 8774-2483 uh, and either leave a message there or, and then we'll get back to people. Okay, there excellent. There are costs involved, of course, in oh, attending course. these and people can find out all that. But Steve Hopper also said, if you're interested, I could give another talk, um, uh, perhaps, you know, on the Wednesday evening. Um, and uh, so this will be held in Melbourne, and it's going to be Darwin's unfinished business, which is something that he's been, <laughs> yeah, you know, very actively involved in. So that will be run in conjunction with the Friends of the Melbourne Gardens, and, um, and, the, uh, and so yeah, that'll be probably. We we think at this stage maybe Mueller Hall, but if we get a lot of interest, we'll probably have to find a larger venue. Yes. Because when Darwin, a stadium or something. yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> when Charles Darwin left Australia, he wasn't very impressed with the floor of Australia, <laughs> and so this is what uh, Steve will be talking about. <laughs> right, his unfinished business. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful! Okay, well, plenty there for listeners to get excited about. That's for sure. Yep, wonderful. Oh, just just going back to. Um, uh, funguses. I, I was, uh, you mentioned lichens, and and um, this this um, uh, is one of those odd things. Who was the person who discovered that, that lichens uh, were a symbiotic uh, relationship between funguses and algae? Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's one of those quiz evening yeah. uh, right. things to keep in mind. Did anyone know? It was Beatrix Potter. Was it? Was yeah. It? Okay. <laughs> Beatrix Potter, who actually discovered this, figured it out, published a little paper on it, and no one took any notice whatsoever because, well, you know, this was back in the day, so she was the wrong sex. And, yes. <laughs> and uh, anyway, she went on to make huge amounts of money uh, uh, writing about Peter Rabbit. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and about 15 years later, a male... <laughs> Um, uh, uh, with an interest in the subject, figured out the same thing and published another paper, but uh, he was 15 he years old. He was taken <laughs> He yes. got the credit. But it was Beatrix yes. Potter we should be thanking for yeah. that okay. little bit. Of, <laughs> there you go. Well, yeah. That's our knowledge for the day. It yeah. is. It certainly is. That's not easy to forget. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, well, it's high time we invited our listeners to join us. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we'd love to hear from you. We have Gwen and Roger Elliott in the studio and also Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill. So do give us a call. The number is 94190155. Or this morning we have Derek for the very last time on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Derek, um, do give him a call, 94198377. That's 94198377. Jeremy, we're coming towards winter, and that makes me think that it's probably nearly time for you to have art in the garden again at Cloud Hill, is it? <laughs> well, uh, we're, we're just we're doing things with art, and 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 uh, we've got one or two projects which we're hoping to to uh, get stuck into, <laughs> betwixt and between at the moment, I suppose. Um, but uh, just thinking of that, I um, at the moment our 
uh, Anchianthus. Uh, there's a whole series of plants we have uh, either been um, in autumn colour or coming into autumn colour right now. It's a big Nico maple now. Oh, crikey, I've figured out how to pronounce it probably. <laughs> now, most probably I won't be able to remember now, but... Uh, um, it's Nico maple. There's uh, the the griseums, the um, paperbark mm-hmm. maple, and that's mm. pretty well the last plant to colour. Um, uh, or this liquid amber formosana, which we have as well, which uh, maintains its colour right through the winter. So there's a little bit happening all the way through. But uh, there's a whole group of plants uh, which are historic, which we. Um, uh, well, direct attention to in the garden, uh, which uh, have been growing for well, coming up a hundred years in a few years' time. Right, and these all came from the Yokohama nursery back in the late twenties. I got around to googling that institution just a couple of weeks ago. I was completely <laughs> staggered. <laughs> I vaguely knew it was a fairly important nursery, and uh, it was fairly famous for its catalogues. And someone once gave me a, uh, just a photocopy of one, the, the front cover of one of these catalogues, and it was pretty impressive. And when you Google the Yokohama Nursery, you oh, there's site after site after site uh, on. On the importance of this nursery, it was established back in 1893 by three Japanese nurserymen uh, scattered around Tokyo and um, was uh, famous uh, almost instantly for these, for its extraordinary list of plants and its catalogues that it was sending around the world. And anyone can try this. Try Googling Yokohama Nursery and right. see what you find. It's uh, Number one, you see that a number of these old catalogues are for sale. And prices start at $800 and go Whoa. through to about $8,000. Goodness me. For a nursery catalogue, for a list of plants with a description of the plants and prices at the end, except scattered through these lists, the plant lists are um, woodcuts, these extraordinary oh, woodcuts, which are, were apparently were hand-tinted wow, and and then distributed to, well, um, people interested in plants uh, around the world um, and to some fairly famous institutions. Right. Um, so what was the connection between the nursery well, and the garden? Yeah, I in fact, I just wish we knew. We, unfortunately, there's, there's no way we can be absolutely sure now except that there's two or three connections. Um Ernest Wilson, Chinese Wilson, is another character who crops up. Now, he sent plants to Ted Warich, who had the original right. nursery on Cloud Hill, yep. back in 1922. So, you know, a fair way back. He was sent to Kroom Azaleas. Um, he'd been um, exploring the Kroom prefecture in Japan just after the First World War. And... Um, um, he exhibited these chromosalias at the 1922 San Francisco World Trade Exposition and Teddy Woolrich heard about them and <clears throat> sent off and was sent the collection. And we've got a few of them growing in our neighbour's garden range view. And there's some of the original chromosalias um, planted in Australia. Now, um, Ernest Wilson, or Chinese Wilson, he spent a lot of time in China, obviously, obviously <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> collecting plants. He's one of the famous plant hunters. They used to carry him around on a chair, I think. Oh, yeah. He, was, <laughs> uh, he had a connection with the Arnold Arboretum in, in, the, in the United States. And one of the sites that crops up, if you go through this exercise, is the Arnold Arboretum because uh, uh, there's a connection with the Arnold Arboretum and the Yokohama Nursery in that... Um, 
uh, along with um, collecting azaleas from the uh, Karoom Prefecture, uh, prefecture um, Chinese Wilson also visited that nursery and spent some time there just after the First World War. And a lot of plants were sent from there to the Arnold Arboretum. Mm. And so the Arnold Arboretum nowadays makes quite uh, boasts about all these plants they have from mm. Yokohama, <laughs> from this famous nursery. And I was looking at the site and thinking, oh, we have a few of those as well. Right. So I only discovered this just a few days ago, so I'm still That's coming to grips with it. So, I, you know, uh, but there's, um, well, for instance, uh, these woodcuts, uh, going back to their catalogues, um, uh, there's uh, um, uh, uh, people in the United Kingdom who have collected quite a few of these catalogues and and have taken prints from these woodcuts and um, uh, you go to Wisley um, and a lot of these things are for sale so <laughs> I'll need to do a lot more work here Pam and track those down but it's uh, um, I was kind of blown away but, yes. but these these woodcuts are some of the most extraordinary well, uh, examples of botanical art that have ever been made. Ted Woolridge didn't have any catalogues, did he? Well, um, I'm sure he did, but what's happened to them, I don't know. Right. Yeah, I'm sure he did because he was in contact with with all these people over quite a few years as he was establishing his business. Mm. So, <laughs> oh, that's that's fascinating, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's all been a bit of fun. Just uh, I'm still, as I said, coming to grips with it. Yes, goodness mm. me. Oh, wow. Okay, well, that's another very good excuse for people to come and visit Cloud Hill and have a look at some of the plants. Yeah, well, we've uh, well the three Enchianthus perillatus we have are just extraordinary, and they've been magnificent this uh, autumn. There's still a few autumn leaves on them. They turn. They have little white bell flowers in the spring, and they the autumn leaves, quite tiny leaves, turn absolutely glowing crimson. There's, mm. there's richer autumn colours anything you can possibly grow in the garden. Um, the only trick with now there's several inchianthus, but the, the only trick with perillatas is it's almost impossible to propagate. So, right. so there's we we have three, but uh, apart from our three, I only know of another handful scattered in old gardens around the hills. I think in the old days they would have most probably uh, would have been layered. Mm. Um, they, they just won't grow from cuttings. Okay. Uh, there's several other species that uh, Nantes that um, Yamina uh, offers, and they're a little bit easier. And it's one or two come very close to Perillatus, so uh, people are welcome to try them. But although they Warning, they are cool climate plants and uh, difficult to grow once you're off the mountain. Yes, mm. yes. But come along and enjoy ours at least. <laughs> Absolutely, in all their full glory. <laughs> yep. Fantastic. Okay, you are tuned to the 3CR Gardening Show. We'd love to hear from you if you have any gardening uh, questions or queries or any comments to make this morning. The number to speak to the team on air is 94190155. Or to speak to Derek on the outside line, 94198377. Roger, let's make a start on some of the plants you brought in this morning. Well, I've cheated, Pam. These aren't from our garden. Right. These I'll are... let you cheat. <laughs> <laughs> they're still out in flower. Oh, they are. Um, and they're from up on the mountain, Jeremy, at Kawara Garden, just that we were on duty looking after the place yesterday. And, uh, of course, there's lots of different heaths out. Mm. 
And some Which, pe- of course, is the national emblem yeah, of that, Victoria. That's right. So the, the pink one. But there's a huge variation in the, in the Pacris Impressa. The, the, uh, and it just doesn't grow in Victoria. It's if you find another, a few other spots too, South Australia, and I think into New South Wales. But um, lots of different colours. And there's one, one here, and it's, it's called a Pacris Impressa Spring Pink. And here okay. we are. And it usually flowers spring, so it's flowering now. So, <laughs> like um, half the things in the garden at yeah. the moment that aren't meant to be flowering. <laughs> but it, it has a much smaller flower. You know, there's others here with the flowers twice as long. So they're a bit over a centimetre long and some are two, two centimetres. So whites, pinks, you can get bicolours. You can get, I know way back, I think it was around about 1870s in England, might have been a bit earlier. They had over 74, 75 name varieties of a Pacus Impressa. Um, Offered in England. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Wow. Yeah, mm. so, uh, um, and, you know, of course you can get some double-flowered forms. There's one called Cranbourne Bells, which is white, um, and it originated just on what what is now the race training track down there. Um, so it has multiple flowers inside its unit, probably 10 to 15 tubes. Wow, okay. The flowers, Roger, are about one to two cent, or a couple of centimetres long, mm. tubular. People who know ericas um, uh, from, well, various parts of the world, Scotland, Africa and other places, uh, they're in the same family as the Australian apacris. Yeah. Um, but, you know, lots of little bell flowers usually hang down, but not always, not and always. Um, yeah. they're very showy. Yeah, and so there's... Um, and also there's quite a lot of Vipacris longer flora now, which has a, a longer uh, bell with uh, red with white tips, but there's one here called Nectar Pink, which is actually a cross between um, one called a Pacris reclinata and a Pacris impressa. Um, but that, that can just be a beautiful plant and a flower. Some people like to let the you know the stems grow without pruning because on a Pacris longer floor you can get these great big long arching branches and they're a bit like the... Um, uh, the name's gone, it used to be called Pentapterygium agapetes now, I think, um, that has the... The uh, the red bells that hang yes, from right. South America. I think it's from South. America. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you can do that, or if you'd rather have them very tight, and get you know. So there's a just a plant here, for instance, that's been pruned at the top. So you've got two, four, six, seven stems coming out with lots of flowers. So you can prune them quite hard, and even with a Pacris impressa, um, in the in the wild, you know, things like wallabies, they get stuck into them and chew them, so you can prune them. Sometimes people have a bit of a problem with cultivation. Uh, they do like fairly good drainage. Okay. And they probably do best uh, not out in full sunshine all the time. So if they get four hours of sunshine a day, that, that'll be fine for them. But it, um, they do like a little bit of protection. But good drainage. Um, of the Apacris Impressa, uh, there's one called, it's so-called Bega, uh, but it doesn't, you don't find it grown in Bega. So how it, you know, got that name, I wouldn't have a clue. But uh, it may have been collected down that way somewhere. That's been in cultivation for a long time. Pretty reliable and it's quite a brilliant um, red. Hmm. Yeah, red with a touch of pink in it I suppose you'd say. And uh, there's another one called bushy pink which is taller 
and that that's proved pretty reliable too. So mm. there are there are some which, uh, but one little spring pink that's pretty good, quite compact and uh, that'll flower for a long time. So have a look in nurseries now that you know anybody carrying a range of Australian plants will probably have plenty of uh, different heaths to to look at. Okay, and well, they flower. You should from... say where you collected those. The Kawara native oh, yeah. Good. Um, garden um, is adjacent to the. Um, uh, Calorama Reserve. I was say, reserve. I was going to say football ground. Well, it is the footy. It is a footy ground, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's, a, it's the most interesting footy ground, cricket it's a, ground. It's a good mathematical footy ground. Yeah. Yes, it because is. Because if, if you look at it, as far I know, a, a maths teacher used to take his students up there just to look at because it's on a ridge, but it com- comes down. Saddle. Yeah, it's a saddle, yes. and then yeah. it comes down on it, and then it goes the other way, like yeah. convex. The other way, it's concave, but it's also convex. convex. Yeah, so yeah, so if anyone playing cricket, uh, <laughs> <laughs> scoring, uh, oh, hitting right. hitting straight down the the, the wicket, uh, you, you're hitting it downhill, that's but right. hitting it uh, to to either side, you're hitting it uphill. So. Yeah, and if, and if the ball was rolling in some directions, it can roll forty meters, sort of thing, you yeah. know. But no, it's an interesting area, and they have lots of. Uh, chestnut festivals and various festivals on that oval, but it's uh, Mount Dandenong Tourist Road at Calorama, uh, and if you look up Kawara K A R W A R A Garden, it's staffed. Or it's organised by the Yarra Rangers Council. It's staffed during the weekdays, and at weekends it's just open. I think one pm to four pm, and staffed entirely by volunteers. So, um, and there's a little nursery there, but. Uh, it's a, it's a nice garden. All Australian plants, not all local plants. Plants are from all over the place. No, it's about uh, five acres and half is um, planted out with plants from all the places, but then the other half is just natural bushland. bushland. Mm. So they could go to Cloud Hill and then come down to Kawara. Absolutely. <laughs> now, what else have you got there, Roger? Um, I brought another group of plants, crowias, once again. I was talking to a nurseryman yesterday and he said, oh, we, we'd be lost if we didn't have crow ears in, <laughs> in the nursery. But that's not quite true. But there's a whole range of different crow ear exhalata. And this is usually a small flowered one. And it has an aniseed fragrance to the foliage. And there are a large number of selections around. Um, some people, once again, may have trouble growing this, but it's uh, good drainage. There is one that's called Bindalong Compact. It's a prostrate one. comes from up the, the high country. That That is a bit of a problem for a lot of people unless you grow it in a container. But uh, some of the others are, are quite good. So Crowia Exolata. C-R-O-W-E-A Exolata. E-X-A-L-A-T-A. But then you get... Another one from New South Wales. I should mention Crowia exulata. Strong holds in Victoria, but it occurs in other places. Um, Crowia saligna from New South Wales with the larger flower. Um, and larger leaf. Larger, larger leaf, leaf yeah. yeah. So it's it's larger all over. And there's uh, once again, there's a few different selections in nurseries. You can get white ones. You don't see them very much. But uh, they're a pink with a touch of mauve. Um but they, they flower for a long time. And all the crow ears are really great cut flowers and it does them well to prune them back and uh, and use them as a, you know, for little posies or whatever or just for vase inside. And uh, and that does help the plants. It just it tends to revigorate them. And then there's some hybrids that occur. Um, 
and there's one called pink blush and so this has probably got a bit of saligna and a bit of exhalata and um, very pink blushy just a little bit of blush of pink as it uh, starts to open and then uh, and they, they grow about one one half meters high okay that one crow saligna about the same may get to two meters but a bit unusual uh, where a lot of the exhaladas will keep a bit lower and um, there's another one here no, I've lost it but it doesn't matter um, called festival Croia festival and um, here it is. It's a deeper pink, over pink. And that's a really good, reliable croia. The, the, the croias are in the citrus family, so they suffer the same problems. Okay. Collar rot. Yes. Things like that. Don't right. put mulch up against the trunks. Yep. Things like that. So you just got to, to watch that scale sometimes. You just got to watch. If you start <laughs> seeing a few blackish leaves or, you know, yep. sooty mould, yep. uh, some, some white oil, that'll get that uh, under control. But, uh, yeah, so they're really good for this time of year. They, they will flower usually late summer and they'll go right through winter. So they do flower for a long time. I was just going to say that often autumn is one of the seasons in Melbourne where we have the least number of plants in flower in the garden. I know because um, from Melbourne International Flower and Garden Show, um, it's a very convenient time for the nursery people to have it in autumn because they're too busy in spring. That's right. Uh, and also they can sell their bulbs in autumn, which, you know, they can import the flowers or grow them in glass houses and that sort of thing. But autumn is the time where you might look out in the garden and think, oh, there's nothing in flower at the moment. But croyas are always, you know, they flower right through autumn. And so um, uh, if you're wanting some autumn colour, you know, Croyas are good small plants, and Roger was saying a couple get to two metres high. I thought they wouldn't in our garden. And I mean, if you own a pair of secateurs, don't let them get to two metres <laughs> oh, high. Oh, no, no, no. That's Unless right. you've got them down the back corner and you don't care how tall they grow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, the tree. Again, Roger, somebody might have woken up in bed there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the tree that they, they belong to the citrus family. Are there yeah. many uh, apart from well, the obvious citrus growing in Australia? Yeah. How many? Um, it's, uh, how many um, oh, yeah. native mm. plants uh, related to citruses do all we have? Your, all your baronias. Yep. The Eriostomum group. Right. Uh, Philoseca and uh, and then you've got some trees. There's, there's yeah. some, of, some of the trees. Um, Thing called Metacosma and other things. So there's a lot in the Rotaceae family in Australia. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? They're even telling us now, some of the, the botanists, that maybe this is where citrus started from up in Queensland. <laughs> Our Australian. Our Australian native. citrus. Yeah. So for a long time they weren't called citrus. They used to call them ostro-citrus or something else. Micro-citrus. Micro-citrus and things like that. So now the botanists are thinking that maybe this is where that started from and Okay. Uh-huh. And uh, well, that's the same up in northern Queensland. That's often stated as the place where quite a lot of the plants did start and spread. Mm. So. Yeah, that's it's, you know, it's interesting, theory, isn't theories, it? Theories, you know. Uh, yeah. so, so, well, they're discovering this more and more that uh, uh, 
Uh, well, you say that, and I instantly think of lyrebirds and songbirds mm. and mm. Uh, mm. Tim Lowe's uh, right. Where Song Began. Mm. And, uh, mm. and it turns out that uh, the old theory that songbirds uh, evolved in the Northern Hemisphere and moved south is absolutely wrong. No, they evolved in Australia and moved out from Australia. <laughs> and the lyrebird, would you believe, is the oldest of them yeah. and is, is five five times as old as the European songbirds and, and yeah, goes back. 60, 80 million years or so. Yeah, it's quite Good a while, heavens. isn't it? Because mm. I know there's a, a woman done a lot of research on birdsong and she thinks that uh, the magpie is the one that has the greatest range, vocal range, of any, yeah. any bird. Okay. Um, yeah, so... Hmm. Also, just talking about odd things, I mean, Roger mentioned where Apacris was native to and you sort of said, you know, various states... You left off Tassie, and anyone oh. from Tassie who's listening <laughs> oh, will be yes. sort of thumping on <laughs> their will. radio at the moment because they have they have the greatest representation. A, a huge range yeah. of apacris, yeah. the native yeah. heaths in Tassie, but the only thing is, I think all of them down there are white. It's like I the eucalypts. So. I mean, Western Australia got all the colourful eucalypts, but and we got all the white ones over in Eastern Australia. But Tassie have got lots and lots of heath, mm. but they're not cultivated to a huge extent because. They're white. It's like our acacias. There's some brilliant uh, uh, wattles in flower. They're not all the same. There's over a 1,000 species. Some are long-lived, some are short-lived, some are big trees, some are ground covers. You know, some of our, our timber trees are long-lived wattles. But because they're all yellow-flowered, we sort of tend to regard them as one plant. And, yes. oh, yes, mm. I've got a wattle. Yes. <laughs> no, to someone, I've got a wattle uh, here. Roger's got a wattle which, which there. Are, and which that, doesn't look... It hasn't got a... Seed. Oh, it has got leaves. Oh, they're, yeah, they're fire loads. It's called the grass wattle. Um, and from Western Australia, Acacia wildenaueana, W-I-L-D-O-W-E-N-I-A-N-A, uh, from the southwest. But uh, at this stage... It just, you know, people think, oh, you know, the Cootamundra is the first one to come out, although the Mount Morgan one, Potoliri Fowler, is out now too. But they're earlier. I'm sure they're earlier this year. Um, but, you know, you can get wattles flowering any time of the year. There's a, but this is a, uh, it's a wispy thing and it does look like a rush. When it does, When yes. it's not in flower. Yes. And it's one of the... There's a few wattles that actually they have like bracts over the buds and when they're just starting to form, they can be quite bronzy colour. Okay. And, so, and there's another one called Restiacea, which means it looks a bit like a Restio. Yep, um, which is a rush. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, but, you know, there are some little... And this is just a small one. It might get to, you know, a metre if you're lucky. Mm. Um, but it's just... just wish, if you like wispy things, some people, you know... Nurseries always want to have things compact. You know, you've got to have compact plants for nurseries, otherwise they don't sell them. But um, there, there are some lovely wispy things to have. And it is a little bit of a fallacy or um, urban myth or something about wattle pollen. Uh, sorry, wattles causing not just a little bit, Gwen. Things. Okay, quite but, a big um, fallacy. Wattle. <laughs> Wattle pollen is very heavy and usually sort of falls straight to the ground. But when some of the wattles are in bloom, uh, it's also the same time that ryegrass 
is flowering and, and distributing its pollen up people's noses. And so, pe- oh, the wattles are in flower again. Here's my hay fever. And they've blamed the, the yeah. acacia. There, there are some, some wattles that will affect people. They're mainly the taller, feathery-leaved right. type. Yes. And that, that can affect. But there was Professor Bruce Knox at Melbourne Botany School. He was uh, a hay fever sufferer himself, and he did a lot of, lot of work on, uh, on this. And uh, he said, right, it's mainly the rye grass. There are other grasses too, but... Uh, the wattles were the plants most tested um, when people were suffering, yeah. mm. but least needing treatment, you know. They just yeah. were given the... But some, peop- some people are allergic, you know, to wattle. There's no doubt about oh, that. Right. You know, just like a whole range of plants, you know. There's yep. People have allergies to different things. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Okay, let's go to our good friend Ken out in Sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, everybody. Look, I was listening to the... Well, I listen to the science program on Radio National every week and all birds originate from Australia. <laughs> all of them. Every, every bird around the world. Oh. Well, blimey. <laughs> and uh, so that's, that's what they say. And also, which we've got to do something, and I don't know. I mean, we've just got to stand up and fight. <laughs> um, you can see I, I was brought up near Collingwood... <laughs> <laughs> I, was brought, I was brought up in Thornbury, so it's not far from Look, our our um, trees, our nature, our um, fauna, as they say, that's under danger too. Oh yeah, in some areas there are quite a quite a few problems. Yep. But we've all got to do something about it. That's too. right. That's right. Yep. Anyway, I'm sorry to bring that doom and gloom. Oh, no, Where's no. our mate from? Um, uh, Philip Island, who catches all the rabbits. We haven't heard from No, that's right, ages. yeah. yeah and every might... time I hear him, I think of my father, and, the, and you can you can come to our place. We live beside the Collaroyte Creek, mm. and you come home, say, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, the whole street is full of rabbits. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I'm not talking about my neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, thanks very much for your program. It's absolutely fantastic. Okay, good, good on you, Ken. Ken. Thank okay. you very much. Bye. 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 Moving on, we have uh, Frank from Craigieburn. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, gardeners. G'day, Frank. Oh, good, good day there. I'll, I'll give you a bit of a rest. I'll, <laughs> I'll do a bit of uh, spruiking myself. Uh-huh. Uh, is, is, is the weather's warming up. I heard the other day on some program, it might have been this one, that uh, people now are growing couch grass and buffalo grass to combat the uh, warmer weather. Mm-hmm. They say it's moving. Now, can you tell me the difference between couch grass and buffalo grass? Mm-hmm. Uh, grass, mm-hmm. like uh, when you go to the uh, garden shops, there's a lot of attention paid to buffalo grass as regards fertilizers and uh, seeds, but never mention about couch grass. Now, could you tell me, as regards uh, having a lawn or open spaces of uh, couch grass, which seems to be uh, pretty tough and tolerant to this weather, dry weather? Yeah, yeah the, the couch grass, I would think, would be tougher than buffalo grass. I, once again, I don't, don't grow, grow a lawn of either, but... Um, what's, what's wrong with buffalo grass, then? Um, I'm just. I think buffalo grass might need a bit more moisture. I'm not too sure about that. But the couch grass will tolerate dryness quite well. Yes. Um, both of them, if you're growing them in a garden area, will both tend to wander if you oh, don't, yes, don't, yeah, yeah, don't look yeah. after them. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, you know, cooch grass they use quite a lot in, uh, especially uh, golf courses and things like yes, that. Yes, and, yes, yes. I think cooch grass can uh, wander underground a little bit more than buffalo grass, yeah, so yeah. that's uh, something to be aware of. Although the the selected forms, I think, uh, tend yes. to stay to the surface a little I've, bit more. I've noticed. I've got a patch in, in the garden. And it's been green all the year round. It's cooch grass. I think it's cooch grass. Yeah. But long runners. Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Cooch runners. Cooch will be quite fine. And all the other grasses have died off uh-huh. with, a, with a dry weather. But, yeah. it, but the cooch grass seems to be thriving on it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it will. Yeah. And it's beautiful green. Yeah. It, it'll, it may be, it'll slow down in winter a bit, but it'll still grow, grow stay green, I think, yeah, over yeah, most, of, most bit, of winter. I've noticed if you give it a bit of a native fertiliser, oh, okay. it, it shoots up, you know. Yeah. But uh, it doesn't need much water. No, no, no. no it, it, it'll, it'll thrive without virtually any water. That's, yeah. that's, my, that's what my question was. Why yeah. uh, it's an unsung, put an unsung hero, like. Uh, yeah. I, but, I'd, I think one of the reasons for that is because it does spread quite vigorously yeah. and gets into things. And... It'll be all right on nature. So oh, yeah. Was... Yeah, fine. But uh, see, you can get some fertiliser now called weed and feed, you know. like. Oh, yes, yeah. I'm yeah. a bit suspicious of that myself. Yeah, well, that's mainly for getting rid of the so-called broad-leaved weeds. We might get rid of a lot. Uh, never mind, it seems to be very popular. Yeah, yeah. Now, before I go, now... The, are there any native grasses, clusters weeds? Uh, look, not See? not that I know of. There may be some in 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 some areas. They may become weedy, but no, I, I don't I don't know. I, of any. I've got patches of uh, tussocks rato or something. Oh yeah, okay. And, and that's uh, the counters are very down on it. You say it's yeah, quite... well that that's that's a non-native grass. Is it? Yeah. Tussock, uh, serrated tussock. Serrated tussock. Serrated tussock. It's, yeah. in, it's an introduced one, I think, from South Africa. Well, it seems to do well in this climate. <laughs> oh, yeah, it does. Oh, yes. Yeah. But, that, that's why councils are trying to eradicate it. Yeah. But I've got a few, and uh, there's a few kinds of tussocks, isn't there? There's oh, yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah, there's quite but a lot of tussock grass. But it's pretty attractive to my eyes. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, some of them are. This is often the case, you know, some... Even uh, you know Australian, some of the Australian plants which have become weeds can be quite attractive. And uh, they've got the, a new uh, new shopping area in Craggyburn. It's real modern, and they've got it's well landscaped. Uh-huh. They've got it growing in the little patches around the uh, telegraph poles and uh, certain little patches where oh, yeah. the seats are. You know, if you ever go, and, and I'm sure it's uh, just a, oh, it, yeah. the council would know better than. Yeah, well, there's quite a few of those tussock grasses can, you know, superficially, they can look quite similar. Yeah, well, that's strange, isn't it? Like, that's what I'm really after. Are there any native plants, clusters, weeds? Um, You know, there are a lot of plants in the poa group have the common name of tussock grass and they're native. But I think, Frank, any plant that's growing where you don't want it to grow is classified as a weed. So one of the native grasses that's used yes. quite a lot is the if, weeping grass. If, micro- if you had orchids growing in, in a corner and, and uh, you don't want it there, that wouldn't be classed as a weed, would it? An orchid? 
Sorry, orchids. Yeah, no, no. Look at well, there are there are some some introduced orchids in Australia now, which are causing a bit of havoc. So from from overseas. Well, anyhow, that's what I'm. I heard you had a book about Nidogatus. Yeah, I mean, there's one example I can give you down at the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. They're very. It's a sandy situation, and they're very aware that they don't want plants to grow wild out into their bushland. Yes. So one of the plants which is very showy, very beautiful, people would say that's not a weed, is the flannel flower. But there are none of them at Cranbourne Gardens and there will never be, well, I can't, you can never but, say uh, that. I, I, I've tried to get on to people at Kilo that you were rec- recommended me. Oh, yeah, okay. And I find it very difficult to get on, you know, like he's away, he's away for six months. And, oh, okay, okay. And, uh, they, they, they transfer me from one phone to another. Uh-huh. Which, okay. Then you get a bit weary of it. Well, yeah, it gets frustrating. So yeah. you, I'll leave it to you. Thanks very much. Okay, good on you, Frank. Okay. Bye. Bye. Yes, now, it's interesting with weeds. I mean, most, many of the weeds that we grow have been introduced for very legitimate purposes. That's right. I mean, it might be, might be to save coastal erosion like that yellow... Mar- Oh, the yellow thing, that bone it, seed. Bone seed. Mm. We introduced it. Um, we went to South Africa one, a few years ago on a visit with the um, Kirsten Bosch Botanic Gardens people, and I thought, oh, am I going to like this? Because I'm thinking of all the <laughs> a uh, lot of South African weeds. Uh, lots uh, of South African mm. plants are our worst weeds. Yep. I get over there, and they deliberately embarrassed us by showing us prickly hakias, eucalypts <laughs> and other things that had gone wild in, in yes. South Africa. Yes, yes. They've got similar climates without yeah. the checks and balances of nature. Yes. And so the plants have, in both cases, been deliberately introduced to serve a specific purpose, mm. like the cane toad and other things that we've, we've introduced. And then without their natural checks and balances... They've just said, wow, I like it here, and taken off. So we tend to say any plant is a weed that has adapted really well, which was the idea of it perhaps in the first place, uh, and gone mad and eliminates the the native creatures or species of plant which otherwise would occupy that space. Well, it's like the eucalyptus in Madagascar. Now, they were originally brought in for railway sleepers. Exactly. And Mm. now, I mean, it's just the whole island is covered with them. And, of course, they're having massive problems with bushfires, which they can't control. Mm. Same in California. Yeah. Yeah. Same in parts of South America and Portugal and and the Mediterranean. Yet it's one of the world's, you know, most important timber trees. Yes. Yeah, that's... so I've always thought there's most probably an argument that um, uh, gardeners should either be growing plants that are, for one reason or, or another, more or less sterile, mm. or or they should be growing plants which are deliberately slightly out of climate, so they have to work at them a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, the problem is, uh, South Africa and Australia, of course, uh, there was, uh, in the very early days, there were sailing ships whistling backwards mm. and forwards, mm. moving livestock, moving fodder, moving backwards and forwards. Yes. And so in Western Australia, we, we ended up with uh, uh, a number of, of uh, South Africans, Cape weed, mm. uh, 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 something we call Guilford grass, which... which uh, it's so ubiquitous uh, in mm. in the southwest of uh, uh, the, of Western Australia now that they, 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 people think they're 
they're yeah, natives. Local. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And, uh, but they, they appeared virtually within the first months of white settlement. Yeah, yeah. But the yeah. main one in Victoria is the blackberry, and that was spread along the, the creeks and rivers mm. so that people could have this lovely food. By a man called the Baron. Yes. Baron. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, and it is, it's a beautiful fruit, the blackberry. Well, yeah. I was just reading a, an article, it was somewhere, not too sure where, but... Um, a chap, a research scientist in South Australia, has been doing a lot of work on um, a plant which some people here would call a weed, and uh, it's a thing called Cassytha pubescens, um, which is one of the, the common names just gone. But anyway, it's um, it grabs onto things. People, if they saw the the first David Attenborough. Um, thing on plants he did this in his first program he had a cassitha germinating and if they don't get their sucking things onto the plant within sort of a climber yeah yeah it's a climb within about 24 hours that plant just dies and so and they had it in slow motion going right but they're finding at this uh, cassitha which is a i should try and remember the common name but anyway um (laughs) it's it's killing gorse well, Dodder. 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 Killing Dodder. The computer no, takes The Dodder Laurel. <laughs> yeah, the Cassitha is a Dodder Laurel. And it's killing gorse. And yes. so they're saying, just even for South Australia, that'll save them, they reckon, at least 7 to $10 million per year they spend on spraying gorse. Yes. But it's also working on blackberry. Really? Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's um, quite amazing. And it. If it gets on native plants, it, it'll take a long time to to knock knock something out. But um, you know, sometimes when you, you travel along the roadsides, you'll see these great big masses of slightly brownishy stems without many leaves, and that's the dotter laurel. But um, yeah, they're finding that uh, for gorse, that uh, it may be a very good control. So, gosh, it's a lot of stuff we don't know, isn't there? Yes, I'll <laughs> say, yeah. <laughs> But, uh, I mean, it's uh, – you, you, you then wonder, you know, you, you, you put – introduce something else mm. um, and it sounds all, all very well and good until it too becomes then a problem mm. of its own accord and, yeah, so but it goes I, on. I, th- I think ultimately it's uh, – uh, the gardeners really have to be aware of this and, and take notice of how their plants behave. You, I mean, that, exactly. That is, has to be part of gardening. Exactly. And, and it's uh, – we, we have to – Make sure that people keep this in mind as as they're experimenting mm. uh, with different things. Mm. Um, Particularly you, if you live near bushland yeah, or near I, waterways. I mean, I mean, the question of whether native grasses can be a weed. I, the, the, when I was in Western Australia, uh, uh, someone did send me a collection of of uh, grasses from uh, eastern seaboard grasses, and pretty well every single one of them. It started exploding across the garden. Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. I thought, well, none of these are native to this part of the world. Yeah. And so I eventually had to have a bonfire and get rid of them. But there were about seven or eight species. And yeah. of those, I think about uh, eight, no, about, I, I think there might have been 10 species uh, altogether. And about six of them were causing problems almost yeah. instantly. Yeah. No, within, within one season. Yeah. Oh, I could yeah. hardly believe it. No, that, that's right. And it. Because when you look back at the, the whole history of introduction of a lot of these plants, they did come via botanic gardens. Yeah. You know, you know a, 
a lot of the pain. But, you know, we're talking about sterility before there, and um, they're finding that some of the potostrum undulatum, uh, the sweet potostrum, yes. are virtually sterile. Now, means that, you know, need to propagate them from cuttings and things like that, but... Uh, you know, so there's there's maybe hope there somewhere, <laughs> but uh, but you know, plants like that can just spread, and then they, you know, there's nothing grows underneath them. That that's one of the major problems. You know. Yes, uh, there's one or two things we grow which I, I feel safe for us, but I won't let out of the garden. I know, I know, I know. Uh, and, and there's one or two. There's one grass I can think of which is in that category, and there's. The Bina bonariensis, which mm, yeah. uh, has um, huge weed, uh, weed potential in parts of Australia. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's used in um, English gardens all the time quite safely, and people see it in Cloud Hill and think, wow, I must try some of that. And I, well, if you're going to try it, be very careful and just have a look at it and then decide whether, whether you really want it. Yeah, no, that, that, that's right. But it's because um, with some of the, the weediness of plants and it is a real problem um, but people can you know keep them under control things like agapanthus you know if they cut them cut the flowers yeah. heads off yeah. and uh, th- that's fine you know and because they're beautiful flowers um, I know I was involved with the, the Australian garden at uh, the Cranbourne Gardens there we went through every species every plant name that was on the list proposed list by the the landscape design team and even Paul Thompson who was one of the designers he was involved and we went through every species by species by species yeah and uh, just to work out whether they were going to be weedy or not and uh, and then there was um, some things were just you know crossed straight out said no they can't be grown but there's others with a management plan you know if that management plan is kept in yes in practice um, you can grow some of these things yeah mm. Okay, let's get to a few more callers. First up, we have uh, Vic down in Maribyrnong. Good morning, Vic. Yeah, I'm... <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, look, uh, you're talking about America growing uh, conifers, uh, sorry, uh, eucalypts in yep. California. Yep. I reckon I've got a good idea. They ought to send guns over there and they can wood chip them and then California won't have a fire problem. <laughs> well, I mean, look, if well, they, they solve the problem, that's how you solve it. Yeah. Now, now next, next, yeah. the real disaster is in South America, mm-hmm. in South America, I believe that the farming land that's no longer good for farming is where they plan, or if they haven't already done so, to far, to grow conifers and eucalypts. What do you know about that? Now, there's a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. For fire, you mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what are they doing that for? They've they, they brought it in there so that they can get the timber. Yeah, that that's right. Well, it's... You've, you've heard of it. Yeah, and also right through Brazil, there's huge... Well, I, like I said, I didn't know which country. All I yeah. know is South America. Yeah. yeah it's a, uh, that, that's my understanding. Some of the worst examples of eucalypts escaping into the into uh, <laughs> habitats and damaging habitats are actually in South America. Mm. But, yes. uh, but it's, uh, it's a problem in quite a few areas of the world. In fact, pretty well every area of the world with a similar climate. So it's uh, <laughs> Euclid's uh, doing extremely well for themselves, but uh, they belong here. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think once again there are a whole lot of species of eucalypt 
And the reason that California in particular ended up with uh, so many eucalypts was that the species that was sent over initially to produce railroad ties, or we'd call them sleepers here, um, it, it was not, su- not suitable and the timber warped and that was no good for their railway ties, so they were just left in the ground. But there are lots and lots of species of eucalypts, and I think there are many that would not become weedy, but unfortunately the Californians were sent the... uh, well, took over a a species that wasn't suited to their purpose, so they just left them. Yeah, well, which species are they growing down in in South America, and which conifer are they growing? Yeah, well, in, in South America, one of their main timber trees there, I think, is Eucalyptus grandis, um, and it's a very fast-growing tree, and uh, and they use it for, for lumber, for timber and things, and for wood chipping. And uh, I know it's a huge industry down there, and they really did a lot of work on drawing, growing eucalypts from cuttings, and that was where they did a lot of uh, initial research, and uh, and that's carried out today even in Australia. Well, and maybe they're sterile. Is that why they grew them from cuttings? No, no, they? they were just trying to get... They wanted uh, to clone the tree so they got the same exactly growth and the things. Exactly the same. Mm. But they also tissue culture them too now. But, yeah, which uh, conifer are they growing, do you know? Don't know. Yeah, because you're mixing both. Yeah. That should yeah. be nice and flammable mix. No, somebody yeah. out there might be able to tell us which conifers, but I, I, I don't know. Uh, Jeremy, I was, uh, no, I'm not too no. sure. Although uh, uh, some of the ideas that were tried in the early days do seem bizarre. I'm trying to think. The gentleman, but one of the one of the very early conservators of forests, said it was the what's his title? Uh, um, not Lane Pool, an earlier one. It might have been Lane Pool uh, mm-hmm. in Western Australia. He he was in charge of the Jarrah, and, and he started planting belts of. Pinus radiata as, as, uh, to reduce the fire hazard of, of the Jarrah. He wasn't happy with all the, the Aboriginal burning that was going on and, and he, he wanted to cut out these fires. So he started planting belts of pine trees to reduce the fire hazard. Now, 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 you know, when they, when they take that Amazon jungle away and then they go and plant all their, do all their farming in there and deplete what, what, whatever's in the ground, now when these conifers and the eucalypts go in, so they deplete the rest of the ground. So what's going to happen after that? Mm, no, it's a, it's a bit of bit of bit of a problem. It sure is. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All yeah. Right. Thanks, 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 for, thanks Thank for bringing you. up the discussion, Vic. Okay. Okay then. Bye. And uh, next up, we'll just uh, he must have heard himself mentioned. We've got Robert from Phillip Island. Good morning, Robert. Hello, good morning, everybody. Yeah, yeah, I've got a, a pleasant surprise. There you go. Yes, how are you all? We're all well. Oh, great. A quick report and everything. Um, still chasing rabbits. <laughs> I went out last week, a few of, not as many around in the paddocks now, winter. Yes. And uh, anyway, I got, a, I got a nice rabbit and uh, I looked up, oh, about six... 12 foot away and I saw a magnificent patch of mushrooms Ah! oh and they were beautiful excellent the farmer gave me permission so I picked some beautiful mushrooms and I dropped some up to a lovely lady at Morwell and she had mushrooms on toast next morning for her breakfast right excellent and uh, Wednesday I'll be picking mushrooms and uh, 
Uh, Wednesday lunchtime, I'll be having fresh mushrooms. It's certainly fungi time at the moment, isn't oh, it? Oh, yes, yes. And if you're careful, uh, there's some beautiful mushrooms around. Yeah, you, you... you just have to really know what you're doing. Yes, yes. It, uh, the vegetable garden's going very well. Good. It's got beautiful cauliflowers, mm-hmm. broccoli. Onions are doing very well. Carrots are doing well. I think it's because the ground's still a bit warm. That's right. So things are actually taking off. Uh, Yeah. The only things I can't grow are Brussels sprouts. I've never been able to grow Brussels sprouts. Yep. I don't know whether it's too warm here. It is. That's what I'd say. It is too warm. That's why they do so much better uh, in Tasmania than in Victoria. There's one or two farms in the Yarra Valley that specialise in Brussels Brussels sprouts. sprouts. They have a drive around the valley and and you'll see these... These uh, broad acres of Brussels sprouts yeah, are quite yeah, dramatic. Yeah, yeah. but you're, you're but, not uh, alone there, Frank. But uh, oh, uh, near Coldstream, uh, uh, check right. the temperature of Coldstream. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even in the middle of summer, it's quite cool. Quite cool. The bulbs are starting to push up a little bit. Some are. Uh, some of the daffodil uh, uh, putting up a little green shoots at the moment. A few... I, been around some of the daffodil growers and some of the uh, John Quillers are coming out. They're the very early ones. Yes, right. So uh, they're doing well too. The other thing that I was just going to mention, I planted some double Canterbury bells. I must have got them in a bit late last year. None of them have flowered, but they look as though this year they might come. Oh, good. And they're the double, they're all purple, and they're the double, uh, you know, the double Canterbury bells? Yes, yes. So if anyone wants some seed of those, I've got... You know, plenty of seed and they're a beautiful flower. So hopefully, uh, would you think they might come on in spring? So I missed last year with them. And what do you reckon? I'll get a flower this year? Well, you've got them in earlier this year, haven't you? They're the same. I haven't dug them out. Right. Oh, okay. You've left them in the ground. Yes, yes. Okay. They're about a foot wide, beautiful, beautiful bushes. So hopefully this year they'll... um, I'll get a flower from them. Someone said some can be every two years, Canterbury Bells. Right, so maybe they were sulking last year. They could have been. (laughs) Yes. Yes, yes. But everything's going well, and um, to the gentleman who was wondering about the rabbiting, I'll be out again this week, and uh, I've got a few orders. People like a rabbit. uh, So everything's going well down here at Phillip Island, and I wish everybody well. Excellent. Good (laughs) on you, Robert. Bye-bye. Nice to hear from you. Bye-bye. And uh, next up we have Julie, who's in Canterbury. Good morning, Julie. Oh, good morning. I was just wanting to talk to Gwen yeah. about um, Apacris in sure. Tassie. Yeah. Um, I grew up there in the 1950s and early 60s, yeah. and we used to roam the hills around Rocky Cape, sort of Jim Willis country, I think. Okay. <laughs> um, right. And collect native orchids, I'm sorry to say. Yes, no, we and, often but, did that. Mm. But regarding the apacris, we used to pick it for our city-bred mother who wouldn't go out. Mm. Um, and it was white, pink, and deep pink. Oh, good. Well, yeah, that's... but it may have sort of bred itself out, maybe. No, but... it's still there. It's well, it was there, because yeah, they were very compact plants, weren't they? Do you remember? They, well, look, I was a kid. I just yeah. wish I could dredge it but up. They used to get the full blast of that... Uh, you know, sea winds there. Yes, yes. And, and, uh, and it was like going... I always imagine escaped convicts trying to get through the country. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, we used to come back just 
covered in scratches. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Everything. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what else was in there, but it was all prickly. Yeah, yeah. No, there's some, <laughs> some lovely coastal cushion bushes, very compact ones there at Rocky Cape. Yeah, it's a lovely place. Yeah, I'm mm. sure I thought. Oh, I'm sorry I said there were no pigs Oh, no, there. no. They're probably forms of imp- impressor. impressor. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah. I think down there you've got maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 or at least different species of apacris, and none of the other ones have got colour variation got colour, like no. impre- impressor has. I, it just... Well, it just struck me because my mother didn't like white flowers. <laughs> <laughs> if she came walking with us, she always had a headscarf, a belted coat and a handbag. <laughs> She's a Melbourne girl. Well, yeah. She um, probably wouldn't be the only one. No, no, but it was really beautiful countryside. Yeah, no, and the other thing was the gorse over there seemed yeah. to be eating Tasmania up. Mm-hmm. They call it the goth. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So I'd be good if there was something that could get rid of it. Mm. Anyway... We are running through until 9.15, our usual time slot, so you've still got time to jump on the phones if you'd like to give us a call to speak to the team on air, which is Gwen and Roger Elliott and Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill. The number is 94190155, or I should say 0155, 94190155. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Derek on the outside line, 94198377. I think we've got a few plants there that we didn't manage to talk about. Oh, fine. Jeremy's probably got yes, some. Yes, I'll then get to, to Jeremy to as well. Us. Oh, look, a couple of other apacris, and there's, you know, the, the Victorian heath has got these tubular flowers. A lot of them don't have tubular showers, flowers like that, they just have little uh, open spreading petals. And this is the Apacris pulcala. Pulcala meaning beautiful. It's a prostrate form, small pink flowers, but it's a lovely thing. It'll just cascade. But there are taller variations of it too. Mm-hmm. But it, uh, it, and once again, it flowers for a long time. So Epacris pulcala, and probably sold as the prostrate form or low form. It, it's a, it's a it's a lovely one. And this is the next one is a New South Wales one called Calvertiana Epacris calverti C A L. V-E-R-T-I-A-N-A and um, there's also another subspecies which Gwen will tell us about which has pink flowers. Mm, Versicolour. Versicolour, But the the thing that I was involved in the Apacris study group for a number of years and we used to record flowering times and Apacris calvertiana, it's, it's not one that's widely known, it fl- it's been recorded flowering in Melbourne every month of the year. Good and heavens. That's, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. And so, it gets up to um, oh, half a metre, might get a little bit taller. Right. But it, once again, it responds from, uh, from pruning. It's quite prickly and quite a lot of the apacris are, you know, they're quite prickles. Quite, uh, quite sub- uh, substantial flowers too. Yeah, yeah. that's right. They'd be, what, two centimetres yeah. long maybe. And the fat. Yeah, they're like yeah, they're um, like a champagne glass, you know, in shape probably. Yes. And uh, but uh, you know, birds once again, a lot of the apacris, you know, birds will go. But the open spreading flowers don't tend to attract the uh, birds, but they'll attract butterflies, right? And things like that, right. which is typical of lots of flowers anyway. You know, the tubular flowers. Yes. Will, the birds will go there, but if they're open, uh, you'll find uh, other things, insects and. Uh, Hoverflies and stuff like that, which are good. Mm, yeah, excellent. Um, I, I did bring a couple of grevilleas in. This is a really interesting 
quite rare grevillea called flexuosa, and it has these <laughs> deeply divided leaves, uh, a bit like what? How would you, desp- you know, describe those? Oh. Um, Anyway, deeply divided, <laughs> prickly, and it's called flexuosa because the midrib of the leaf is actually zigzag, which is flexuose. Right. Yeah, the leaves are sort of heading towards a holly leaf or yeah, an well, American a black oak leaf. Yeah, yeah but, even uh, yes. Mahonia. Well, not yeah, quite ma- Mahonia. Yeah, like, but, yeah. Uh, but, well, there are one or two Mahonia. Yeah. It's very similar yeah. and nice and prickly as well. Yeah, they are. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it's quite a vigorous plant. Uh, a lot of the ones that are sold these days are grafted, but it'll get up to two metres high or even a bit more and probably three metres across. And then it has they're just the flower buds are wilted here, but they've been picked, but they're cream and quite sweetly scented. So, uh, But you need do need space for it. Grevillea flexuosa, West Australian uh, one, but it is rare, but it's now you know cultivated. And when you look at it from a distance, it's a slightly greyishy green. So it's a, a different texture for a garden. Uh, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's go next to uh, Marilyn, who's in Sunshine. Good morning, Marilyn. Good morning. How are you all? Well, thank you. Um, I've got a mandarin tree my son gave me for Mother's Day, and I've planted it in a pot plant in the citrus potting mix, but it's got lots of new shoots, and I'm wondering whether I should prune it as well. Probably let it go. I'd let it go. Let it go? Yes. No worries. Okay. Yeah. No, look, it sounds as though it's happy. Yes. Okay, then. No worries. (laughs) Thanks very much. Okay. Hope you get some fruit. Yep. (laughs) Me too. Okay. Bye. No, it's obviously just very happy. I know. (laughs) Our son was up yet, or might have been day before yesterday, and uh, he's got mandarin trees, which um, uh, we got from Nick. Okay. A long, long time ago. Yep. But he's often never there, so they don't get watered enough. But this year, well, while he's away, um, one of his mates, who's a chef, used to come around, and unbeknownst to Grant, he was watering his, his citrus ah. trees. <laughs> and uh, so he's had quite a few fruit, mandarins especially. Yes. And uh, we had some mandarins which we bought at the, the local uh, Arcuna Market or somewhere. And uh, he said, I only want to try one segment to see whether they're better than mine. <laughs> not from the mark. Yeah, yeah, from, yeah. So, and, he's, and I said, yours are much more tastier than this, Grant. They were, because undoubtedly the, the ones that are in orchards get pumped with water, you know. Yes. And sometimes they don't get as much taste, but his are a bit smaller and there's just so much difference mm. in, in taste. Yeah. So. Again, it, it just goes to prove if you grow your own produce, it's by far the best. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, pick it fresh off the tree. There's nothing better. Yeah. So, Wonderful. Okay. Yeah. Jeremy, I think yeah, you had something you. there you wanted to oh, mention. Um, yes, well, there's some workshops coming up, uh, diggers' workshops. Uh, uh, and uh, we're doing workshops, well, diggers rather are doing workshops at Cloud Hill on the first weekend of each month. So it's worthwhile checking other diggers' uh, website or our website. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. Uh, um, 4th of June, Saturday 4th of June, there's um, a workshop on worm farms for anyone interested in worm farms. And uh, they seem to be extremely popular nowadays. Oh, and, yes. Uh, and later that day, there's also um, pruning and training berries. Um, so um, just uh, something to check. And anyone interested, uh, 
those workshops are held over an hour or two uh, just in the um, in the nursery. You need to book beforehand. Just give the uh, uh, digger staff a hoy and and pop, pop your name down and away you go. Excellent. Um, there's also a um, a pottery workshop, which is I, I'm, this is a little bit more ambitious, I feel, um, and, and this has been run by Peter Thomas in in July, uh, the second of July. But uh, so this is a two hour workshop, and for anyone interested in making their own terracotta pots, and I've got a great fondness for terracotta pots, so I think I'll be along to um, see how this one goes and give it a go myself. Um, that's oh, one of the great changes, I think, that uh, that, that uh, there's no one doing terracotta pots nowadays in Australia. And when we first started the nursery, there, there were one or two. Northcote, yeah, they still had their potters working and making local pots. Yes. And um, in fact, we, we have a collection of potted plants um, just on our little uh, balcony uh, and... Uh, uh, over the years, of course, terracotta pots build up this incredible patina. Yes, uh, and uh, the the best of our pots are not the <laughs> glazed pots from God knows where. They're the old terracotta pots, the yes. old Northcote terracotta terracotta pots. So um, come along, if anyone interested, uh, you can make your own pots. And and um, um, so again, check with the digger staff, and um, they can pop your name down. I would imagine that would have to run for a bit more than an hour. Then. Oh yeah, for, well it's a couple of hours, and, yes. uh, and it's uh, run by Peter Thomas. Uh, he has the Muddy Feet Studio. Okay, and uh, I'll be intrigued to get to know the gentleman and see how all this goes. But um, um, keen to give it a go myself. Yes, excellent. Mm. Jeremy, are you planning um, any of the uh, the garden visits that you've run in the past? Uh, but look, we, we are doing things. Uh, in fact, it was interesting. Um, yeah, I'm sort of sitting here with this great sheaf of <laughs> flowers from just around the corner from us and thinking, how many months since I last was walking around Kawara? Mm. Um, so I was slightly embarrassed. But... Um, the thing about the Dandongs, of course, is there are just such a range of incredible gardens all within three minutes, five minutes drive of, of each other. Mm. And um, and so we are we have a list of gardens which uh, either they're open permanently, uh, and of course Kawara is, um, and there's a number of the Parks Vic gardens in that same category. Um, but, but there also there's quite a substantial number of private gardens that will open for groups mm. and we have an informal list of, of these gardens at the moment but we're hoping to kind of formalise it And uh, so, we're, but we're dealing with about 15 people here so this is happening slowly but uh, for instance Beachmont is, is um, <clears throat> a good example um, that was a garden planted out by a uh, retired nurseryman back in about Thirty, forty years back, and he just planted all the his favourite plants, really. But over about ten acres, it's quite substantial, wow. and it's a nice level garden, <laughs> uh, which is rare in the hills. Um, I had a little bit to do with it when the Beggs owned it, and we put a little bit of structure into the garden. I pinched an idea from Rousham in England. We put a reel into it. If anyone has ever been to Rousham in England, there's a 
uh, it's a, actually in Century Garden, but there's a real which looks uh, minimalist. There's though someone built it six months ago okay. running through the garden. So we popped one of these into Beachmont and it's one or two other things too. So, But that's a garden which um, is good for groups. So for, for um, garden groups, uh, travelling in a coach, for instance, uh, needs about 25, 35 people. Yep. And they are very happy to open by appointment. Right. But it needs a, a little bit of a group of people. So if anyone wants to organise... A group of people. It can be self-driver. Doesn't need a coach. Uh, that's an example of a garden that we 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 can have um, open, especially. But this it goes on from there. Actually, there's Como down in the basin, uh, uh, Mawara. Uh, there's mm. Kenlock. Um, there's the old um, Mernda Heights uh, garden, Norma Berry's garden, um, the old Coles garden, as uh, the locals call it. And that, again, that that's quite big. It's it's around about fifteen acres. Okay. Um, fabulous collection of magnolias. They've been building up over the years, but it goes on from there. They they that that that, that planting was done initially back in the nineteen thirties, mm-hmm. and um, uh, Norma Berry's um, dad was very interested in rhododendrons, and he was one of those, that group of people importing rhododendrons um, into Australia. Uh, in that generation, and there's quite a fair number of really rare species scattered through the garden. Okay, it's, it's the same. That, that's true of the National Rhododendron Gardens, of course. And of yes. course, uh, the National Rhododendron Gardens is open and permanently. But um, I think I mentioned a, a year or two back that um, um, the Parks Vic, that who run those gardens now, were doing some research into these rhododendrons, thinking. What are we doing running all <laughs> with a hundred acres worth of rhododendrons and thinking, uh, well, they're just going to be hybrids and nonsense, aren't they? And discovered that the people, the the, the nursery people and the enthusiasts of the nineteen fifties and early sixties had actually managed to put together a really important collection of species rhododendrons, many of which were pretty well extinct in the wild. Mm. I mean. Um, and um, so they they have this to they've identified these and putting labels on them. Oh, good! And uh, Parks Vic managed to find a little bit of money and, and really got stuck into the maintenance. And so the the, the National Rhododendron Gardens is, um, is looking, uh, dare I say, much more handsome now than it was say five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, courtesy of this research. Right. So they're all things that are happening in the hills and yes. so we we sort of keep our ear to the ground. So any any um, uh, any secretaries of garden clubs looking for interesting things to do over a day or even two or three days, um, um, give us a ring and we can put together an itinerary. Fantastic. Mm. That's brilliant. Mm. Yep. What's happened to the Alfred Nicholas garden these days? Um, well... Uh, that's uh, most probably a lot more work's going into that now than it has been the case over the say five years ago, ten years ago, because mm. the the big development right next door with yes. uh, Shannon Bennett. Yes. <laughs> um, so they're taking that much more seriously as well, and so that's a little bit of a um, uh, uh, there's a relationship between the uh, uh, Parks Vic and and the um, uh, and the Shannon Bennett. Uh, Operation and the the, the old um, Burnham Nick, Beaches. yeah Burnham Beaches, um, of course. They Burnham Beaches uh, is um, still on the back 
burner, the, the actual old mansion, but uh, the piggery the, the, um, has um, well opened about two years back now, and that's extremely popular. So anyone wanting very... <laughs> what do you call it, Brunswick style <laughs> food in the hills? Yes. There it is. Yes. I, what amuses me about the piggery is it's uh, why is it called the piggery? Well, it's, well, the the, the, uh, um, the Nicholas people actually did have some pigs here in the old days. And they okay. had they built these two concrete silos, which are actually um, a conc- well, they're, they're quite tall and they they're, they're twin silos and they're. Uh, octagonal, I think, and they sit side by side. And um, the 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 piggery uh, cafe actually runs out to one end of these uh, twin silos, which look like versions of the Sissinghurst Tower. <laughs> so anyone who's been to Sissinghurst and then goes to the piggery, you think, crikey, <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> right. uh, so it's always the same height and the same size, okay. except concrete rather than tube yes. brick. <laughs> yes. And the piggery cafe attached to the rear. So it's worthwhile going just purely for the fun of it, I think, just yes. to make that comparison. Okay. Wonderful. And, of course, Kalwara has gone from strength to strength. Yeah, look, it's still in the renovation stage. There's a lot of work. But, gosh, there's been a lot yeah. of work oh, going I think, it. yes, well, I, I think of it a few years ago and think, yeah. well, we did we did walk around a few months ago, mm. <laughs> Roger, so yeah. we, uh, not, not in the last few weeks but no. a few months back. And, yeah, and, um, um, yeah I was very impressed last yeah, time. Yeah, no, I look, it's, um, it is coming on. And, uh, you know, council are supporting it more, which is that's good. Which is good. Mm. Yes. And they're, they're trying to, to – they've got a, a great facility. The whole area is just perfect for small conferences and things like that too. So it's used a lot by the council, I think, for meetings and things. But it, if people are wanting to have a place, you know, where they want to have a small conference, it's perfect for that. Mm. But, um, yeah, they've just uh, – just being up there yesterday, they've done a lot of replanting. There's just plants gone in last week by the look of it. Okay. So um, it'll be interesting to see. But, uh, yeah. I find it really fascinating that uh, the, 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 the concept of growing a collection of native plants in what's, what is really a, a fairly strange uh, yeah. spot for growing native plants. I mean, it's, it's highly fertile volcano. <laughs> Soil and That's a right. really unusual climate by Australian standards, yeah. yes. and uh, with a native plant collection and and uh, doing a pretty good job of it. Uh, but so many of the plants, I'm, you know, if you, you, uh, Roger was speaking of kangaroo paws, and yeah. dare I say, I, where, where we were farming in Western Australia back in the seventies and eighties, where it was a hot spot for kangaroo paws. We we had. Lots of kangaroo paws yeah, yeah. uh, and some really famous ones, mm, yeah. uh, and one one or two extremely rare as well. We we had about uh, eight ten species yeah, all yeah. growing within. We, we, they're just everywhere, mm. um, and um, but but the the soil types and the climate is just so so different. And when you were speaking of kangaroo paws in the uh, growing Victoria, and I was thinking, well, most probably going with the hybrids and the. The, the, the new disease-resistant varieties is not such a bad idea because these oh, species yeah, no. are, are really tricky, trying to get them to transfer to Victorian conditions. Yeah, that, that's right. Probably when you think of the species Flavidus, which is the main one from the south of WA, and that's what they're using a lot in breeding now, which initially they didn't use that. A lot. Yeah. They were using a lot of the smaller ones. But a lot of the smaller ones, when they did their breeding, were really for the European 
yes. you know, northern hemisphere market right. as pot plants, container plants, and when when they cut uh, yeah cut flowers, but the small ones were mainly for pot culture, and when they were released here. They just didn't perform well because they yeah. were they weren't bred for the conditions here. You know? No, that's yeah. right. They were, they were for, for pot plants, which were going to flower for twelve to eighteen weeks, and then people chuck them. Yeah, well, flavitus grows in the Kerry country, doesn't yeah, it? That's yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, uh, which is the one tiny, tiny part of Western Australia that does compare with Victoria. Yeah, yeah. And the and the, you go down around Albany and ways through through that area on the south coast, and the flavitus are often sitting in water. You know, yeah. so they'll cope with that. So, the, the breeding now is, is is switching quite a bit, which is good. But of a couple of others, there's one called um, uh, Rufus, which is red from the south, quite a brilliant red, and uh, and that does fairly well here. But uh, but some of the others from up the north, little cat's paws will do do okay. But a lot of them are short lived in nature, and that's the other thing. Yep. People often the West Australian emblem. Andicosanthus manglesii, the red and green one. In in nature, that is fairly short lived, right? And people mm. expect to plant them here and last. Yeah, and last. We 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 had thousands of them everywhere. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. 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 Okay, uh, we haven't got much time, so we'll try and quickly fit in a couple of calls. We have Ruth in Box Hill. Good morning, Ruth. Oh, good morning. Um, look, I'm just ringing in reply to the fellow who rang about saying the all birds originated in Australia. Oh yeah, good on you. Yeah, um, look, it, uh, that information did come from an ABC Catalyst program, which anyone can, you know, download. Okay. Um, what what they're actually saying is that not all birds, but three groups of all birds originated in Australia. So they include all songbirds, yes, parrots, yes. and yep. pigeons. Okay, yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, the fellow they interviewed on Catalyst is Tim Lowe. Oh, yeah, he's Tim, Tim, he's the man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he has written a book, so anyone who wants to read a bit more. Yes, um, Where Song Began. Where Song Began. Fabulous book. And he also has a, I uh, did a quick Google, and um, he also has his own website, yep. timlow.com. Yep. Okay. Lots of information. Wonderful. Yeah. All right. Thanks for that. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. No, it's something we should, as gardeners, Fauna is actually quite tricky, but when it comes to birds, that's something that we can look after, and and certainly with with the this amazing sheaf of flowers sitting beside me, though uh, there's so many of the the um, birds can really really enjoy those. Yeah, and even bird bars. That's one thing. Running a nursery for so many years, so bird bars are really good. Uh, just put some out in the open for the big birds, the big buffy birds, then some underneath the shrubbery for the little wrens that mm. don't really want to go out into the open. No, exactly. And, and you'll yep. find that the birds are using them all the time. Fantastic. Yep. Okay, very quickly we have uh, Chloe in Croydon. Just Hi, for you, Roger. Hi, how are you? All right. Hi, Chloe. You got a specific question? I do have a quick question about my eucalyptus tetragona that I've got in a pot. Yes. Um, I looked at it yesterday morning and it had lots of little um, caterpillars on it uh-huh. okay. that have been, it looks like it's eating the top layer of the leaf. Yeah, leaf might, yeah, fine, okay. Is it sawfly larvae or are they leaf miners or? Uh, they'll be, they're probably not sawfly larvae and they may not be um, leaf miners, they're just going to be one of those ones which will just eat across the top and take yeah. the top layer off. Yeah, that's what they've done. Yeah, so just squash them. Yeah, I sprayed them with the soapy water, and yeah, I that'll be fine. Yeah, 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 that that that'll that'll get rid of even a bit of, bit of white back. oil. But uh, yeah, that that any greyish foliage eucalypt yep. that's. 
can be fairly common about okay. this time of year. All right. Well, thank you very much, guys. Have a good day. Same Take to care. you. Bye. 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 Um, Roger, you, we have time to just quickly remind um, listeners of um, the fungi uh, because, as you said, bookings actually close tomorrow for that one. Yep, fine. If any listeners are interested in going. Yep, fine. It's uh, the Fungi Fabulous Fungi Workshop, Saturday 4th of June, all day at the Royal Botanic Gardens at Cranbourne. Uh, members $60, non-members 75 and students $30. And you can contact Amy Akers, 0423-513-281. And um, Amy will, will help you with the booking forms and things like that. Excellent, excellent. Okay. And that should be a wonderful day. Uh, it'll be good because we're also going for a wander after the talks, then going looking... And last time we did this, I think we might have covered 50 metres, or maybe a bit more, 50 to 100 metres. You a, found too much to go further. In, in an afternoon, <laughs> because there's also truffles down there too. Oh. Which the bandicoots eat. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> no wonder the bandicoots are so happy down there. Yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. Jeremy, quickly give us, uh, listeners, the hours of opening for Cloud Hill. Oh, uh, nine to five, seven days. Just uh, check the website, and uh, it's all on the website. But uh, seven days, somewhere just on the Linda Monblock Road, out of Linda, and right at the top of the Dandenongs. Excellent, and and the diggers workshops. Yeah, d- well, the first weekend, uh, first Saturday of each month, and they'll they'll be running them straight through winter. Right. And um, excellent. Yeah, and just and again, check the diggers website. Yep. Okay. That's all we have time for for yet another week. A big thank you to the panel and also to Rosemary and Derek for handling all the outside uh, calls. But, of course, we'll be back uh, next weekend at 7.30. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.